Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is the second episode in a special three-part podcast series from the BMJ. Today, we're talking about the health of adolescents. This podcast is part of a special collection on adolescent health and well-being, supported by the Fondation Bontnard and PMNCH, the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. To tie in with this collection, which deals with all aspects of adolescent well-being, we've created this podcast series. Each episode discusses the unique challenges young people face, and how to get these challenges the attention they deserve. In the last episode, we looked at the importance of connection during these formative years and beyond, and today we're looking at our physical and mental health. Starting us off, I want to introduce you to Natasha Salifianji Kalma. So I'm a medical doctor, a public health specialist, and I work very closely with adolescents and young people. Natasha is CEO for Copper Rose Zambia, an organization dedicated to supporting young people, especially girls and young women, to thrive in all aspects of their lives. I kicked off our conversation by asking Natasha, can you explain what actually inspired you, motivated you to follow your career in this kind of work? I trained as a medical doctor and my goal was how can I use my inherent talents and abilities and interests to make a difference. So so I came together with a colleague, Faith, and we started Copper Rose. And the idea was to use our skills to develop others and to share information in our communities because that was a very big gap there. And over the years, my life has been dedicated to improving the lives of girls and young women and also now increasingly boys and young men as well. So that's mostly what I do. I want to speak to you about a particular project that you've been involved in called Candid Pride. Before we get to what the project actually is, can you describe what the situation for young women in Zambia was before the, the situation that you were hoping to do something about? So the statistics in Zambia at the time showed that the child marriage rate was as high as 47%. The rate of teenage pregnancies was as high as 29%. There was also a very high dropout rate. And at the time, girls were not allowed to go back to school when they fell pregnant. There was just so many daunting statistics that were disadvantaging women and girls. And even more importantly, about 85% of girls had no access to sanitary protection, which exacerbated the factors leading to girls dropping out of school. So that's what prompted me to start Copperos and which started off first of all with the Candid Pride campaign. And the campaign really is and has been about getting women and girls to be proud of who they are, proud of what's happening to their bodies and be candid about it because it's often a subject that is hidden and people don't want to talk about it. So why not be as open about it and, and be proud of it if it's not going away anyway? Can you explain a bit more why sexual and reproductive health is important, not just during adolescence, but has impacts for, for people throughout their whole lives? Sexual and reproductive health is a very important subject. And in our exercises and our training or our capacity building workshops, we have this, with this piece where we ask people to highlight what's the most memorable thing about their young years. And without giving them an age to, to reflect on, 98% of the participants will talk about a time in their adolescence 
often around puberty. And so this for us shows that sexual reproductive health in adolescence is very, very important because one, people will remember it when they grow older. And two, some of the impacts of poor sexual reproductive health practices will live with them long after uh, the adolescence has, has period has passed. Natasha Salifianji Kalma there, who we'll be coming back to at the end of the episode as we hear about the powerful impact her work has had. And in the next episode of this podcast series, which is all about education, we'll return to the need for better sexual and reproductive support for young people. So stay tuned for that. As Natasha mentioned, organisations need to be specific in how they approach the health of adolescents, a theme that's going to come up throughout today's episode. And to do that, young people need to have a seat at the table, something that they're all too often denied. For Ala Murabit of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, this is a challenge she's come up against time and time again in her work. It's a challenging reality because nobody's excited to make space for somebody else, you know, and, and one of the unfortunate realities for youth, this almost sense of tokenization, if that makes sense, it was like, okay, well, we'll build the entire strategy and program and then we'll come and consult you. It was more the optics of participation. And so is it legitimate kind of architecting participation that we're talking about in most cases, or is it the perception of participation and the perception of inclusion? Showing is better than telling is something that my um, my parents always used to say. And I think it's true in this case as well. I hear so much from organizations about how they are intentional about the participation of women and youth. Um, and yet I very rarely see women and youth around the table. I think it always starts a lot more closer to home than people, you know, assume. We'll hear more from Alla later in this episode as she describes how she brought women to the table during peace talks in Libya. Also joining us to discuss other aspects of physical and mental well-being, we have interviews with Don Bundy of the Research Consortium for School Health and Nutrition, Anshu Banerjee of the Department of Maternal, Newborn, Child and Adolescent Health and Aging at the World Health Organization, plus youth activist Dev Sharma of Bite Back 2030. This episode marks the second of this three-part mini-series reflecting on adolescent well-being. Our previous episode discussed connectedness, and our third and final for the series will investigate education. This series ties in with a special collection of papers on the topic published in the BMJ last year and spanning the range of adolescent well-being. Our next interviewee, Anshu Banerjee, is the director of the Department of Maternal, Newborn, Child and Adolescent Health and Aging at the World Health Organization. This is a life course department, which means it looks at how health at each stage of life links to health of the others. And so I spoke with Anshu about why adolescent health is so important during those formative years and beyond. Well, the way we look at it is really looking at sort of the triple impact or the, uh, of, of health on adolescents. So one is during the adolescent health period, what are the health issues that adolescents deal with themselves? Secondly is what is the impact of health issues during their adolescent health period later in life? Uh, but we also know that there is impact on, of the health of adolescents on the next generation. So let's break it down then. What are the perhaps biggest threats to adolescent health during that time of adolescence? 
So uh, this depends on uh, which country or which region in the world you are in. Uh, so, for example, we know that in older adolescent girls in southern Africa, HIV is a major issue. We know that in, let's say, the Middle Eastern region, uh, violence due to conflict is a major cause of death. And in other countries, it might be other things. Um, one of the things that we have seen coming out of the COVID pandemic, of course, is the emphasis on mental health in adolescents. So it's very contextual. Um, and therefore, when we look at what programs should be doing, they should be really looking at what the data tells them around adolescent health in their particular setting. And can you give a sense now of why what happens during these adolescent years doesn't stay there and does end up having impacts across the course of a life? So, for example, the adolescent period is sort of the period when a number of risk factors, what we would call uh, non-communicable disease-related uh, risk factors, uh, would start. So, for example, it's uh, adolescents deciding what, what they would eat. Another risk factor would be um, initiation of smoking. And the earlier you start smoking, the more difficult it is to stop smoking later in life. Uh, another risk factor, for example, is having a sedentary lifestyle. 81% of adolescents are inactive, uh, and this is defined as having less uh, than 60 minutes activity per day. We know that physical activity is related to uh, improved sleep, and thereby, let's say, a better mental health status. Uh, we know that it's related to um, their educational uh, outcomes, attainments, and many of these risk factors are sort of interlinked as well. So this is an age group where if not enough attention is given to their health and well-being, and if they don't uh, address these risk factors, let's say, they will have long-term uh, impact during the rest of their lives. It's perhaps intuitive how adolescent health is important for the adolescent themselves, both during those teenage years and later in life. Can you explain why it's also important for, as you put it, the next generation? We know from evidence that the nutritional status of the parents is important on, uh, for the health of uh, their child. And of course, there are issues around the mental health as well of the parents and how they engage with their uh, child and how they support the child in growing up. The healthier the parents are, the better the mental health status is, the better support they can provide to the child, uh, the better the environment is that they can provide, the more security, the more safety, and that will lead to uh, a better uh, growth and better development and well-being of the child. And talking of mental health, can you outline why mental health interventions during adolescence are so essential? We know that about 50% of uh, mental health problems already start, let's say, by the age of 14. So uh, the earlier we can intervene, and uh, the, the better. And so uh, in order to support adolescents, uh, not only for their well-being during their period, of being an adolescent, but also later in life, it's very important that we address this issue of mental health. And I think the pandemic, again, has really shown that. A lot of the people we've spoken with on this podcast have the feeling that adolescent health and well-being is often overlooked. What arguments would you personally make so that this doesn't take place, that it gets the attention that it deserves? It's important to make sure that, you know, if you have invested in 
early pregnancy and having a safe delivery and early childhood development, then later in life you don't want to throw those investments away because you're not investing in the adolescent. Uh, it's not one or the other. It's not that we should pay less attention to younger children and suddenly more attention to older children, the adolescents, particularly also because both early in the life course, so in the first few years of life and during the adolescent period, there's a lot of brain development. And so this is a period where our interventions will have a lot of impact. When you look at your own adolescence and the care and support you received during these years, can you thread your well-being now back to those formative years? I have often thought about that. The connectedness with my friends in school, the hobbies I had, uh, the physical activity, playing sports, etc. I do think uh, all ensured that throughout my whole life I was physically active. I never smoked, I never drank. So uh, a number of decisions I took as an adolescent, let's say, have had an impact throughout my life. That was Anshu Banerjee. And now is a great time to mention that all of the themes discussed in this episode and much more are discussed in letters published in the BMJ Special Collection on Adolescence. They cover everything from climate change's impact on young people to connection, the digital world and the future of education. To read them, search for BMJ Adolescent Wellbeing or follow the links in the podcast notes. As Anshu touched on, the COVID pandemic highlighted so many of the ways we've historically failed young people, exacerbating problems the world over. And this lesson was incredibly stark for nutrition. As COVID-19 spread across the globe and countries shut schools to try to limit transmission, some 370 million children across the world were deprived of the free school meals they'd been depending on before. Don Bundy of the Research Consortium for School Health and Nutrition worked on getting countries back on their feet, and today's school meals are back in force. Don has both researched the impact of health and nutrition on children and adolescents, and has worked with the World Bank on implementation. And I have to say that it was very important to me that I had that academic piece, so my understanding of the uh, of what it is that needed to be done, but then it was fantastically helpful to actually work with governments and see how to do it and, and how in practice those programmes could be translated into programmes at scale, in effect international programmes. Given Don's expertise, I wanted to understand just why nutrition matters, and matters for adolescents in particular. Most of the nutrition research really focuses on, on very young children, children during the first thousand days. And that thousand days includes uh, the nine months uh, inside the mother. What, what we've been, what we work on is what happens next, what happens after that. And people talk about the next 7,000 days when, when, when they refer to that. So that's the period basically from, from two on up to the, the early 20s. The remarkable thing is, of course, that a whole lot goes on during that period. And it's, it's really surprising that this hadn't been a, a focus of research before. Let's, let's look at the early part of the teenage years. That's, that's the phase leading up to and including uh, puberty. And that's a phase where 
uh, young people, where all of us put on something like doubling our, our weight. It's a period of rapid growth and, of course, very rapid change. There's lots of hormonally driven changes that happen around that time. So clearly there are quite different nutrition demands um, in the early part of that phase and, and later on. And equally, if we look at older adolescents, what do, we, what do we see there? We see that that's a crucial period for uh, mental development that, that also needs to be addressed in special ways in terms of nutrition. So getting enough of the right kinds of foods is vital for healthy development during adolescence. But the importance of nutrition during these formative years doesn't end there. The impacts of eating right at this time can be felt right through the course of a life. So a lot of our dietary preferences are actually established very early in our, in our childhood, so around 8, 9, 10 years of age. Overweight and obesity are associated with significant uh, non-communicable disease problems in middle age. So it is a really complex and long-term picture that has uh, very material consequences for our whole lives. School meals really highlight one of the many ways education can impact our physical well-being, just as Natasha's account of Copper Rose Zambia at the start of the episode highlighted education's role in adolescents' sexual and reproductive health. But is the opposite also true? Is our education influenced by our physical well-being and nutrition? So it certainly is, and there are sort of two ways of thinking about this. One is access to education. Access to education uh, usually means, do you attend school? Do you you keep going to school? And one of the incentives for many children is that they're fed at school. So school meals programs can be a very important draw for children. But the other half of the the equation is, is about the learning part about cognitive development, about how well the well-being of the individual has a significant impact on on their ability to uh, spend time on task and to get on with, uh, with, with the learning. That was Don Bundy explaining just how important food and nutrition is to our lives and to our education. That's something that Dev Sharma knows firsthand. When we spoke, he'd just finished his last year of school. So I just finished my A-levels, which are the exams that we do at 18. And I'm having the summer of my life. <laughs> it's just partying and going out with friends. So perhaps pretty typical for a British 18-year-old. But for the last few years, Dev has had far more to do than just schoolwork and partying. I'm also a food activist who's campaigned on banning junk food advertising and sit on the youth board for Bite Back 2030, which is a youth-led movement aiming to revolutionise the food industry. Dev is passionate about nutrition, about its impact on young people like himself during their adolescence and for the rest of their lives. So when I called Dev up, I started out by asking him, now can you explain how you actually first got involved in activism and particularly activism around food? I was really a normal teenager who's just <laughs> out on the street. But I, this kind of came from in around 2019 when I was probably around 14 years old. I didn't realise that I grew up in a food desert. And a food desert is an area where there's not a lot of access to healthy, nutritious food. Basically means the area is dense 
in unhealthy food, ultra processed, it's cheap, usually caters to the local community because the community is a lot more deprived. Uh, one time at my local youth club, uh, the Food Foundation, which is a think tank, they came over and they taught us about food insecurity in Britain, which I hadn't really ever thought about. I mean, I'm ethnically Indian. Anytime I do think of food insecurity, it's, I think, back to India. Don't really think of the UK as the sixth largest economy in the world. Um, and they explained to me that how in my local area, around 40% of young people grew up below the breadline. And then they explained to me how my peers and I are more likely to die 10 years younger than our more affluent peers from diet-related diseases. Now, when you consider it's already difficult to get into a good university, it's already difficult to get a good job, when it's already difficult to climb the social ladder because of your background, you're now also telling us that food, such a common connector, something that can bring everyone together, is actually exacerbating inequalities between us. Um, and that's when I kind of flipped. I was like, I need to get involved. It's a moral injustice. This is absolute wrong. Something about my generation, about Gen Z, is that when that nerve flips, when that switch flips in your head, we are, as a generation are ready to call out those injustices, are ready to call out the wrongs. And can you explain how that actually got started, the initial work you ended up doing? Uh, so the food foundation is of course at my local youth club i shared uh, some of my school food right and i was like this is the type of school food we get at lunch um and these adults who i was telling the story to they were proper horrified and then they were like dev do you want to come to the house of lords and testify so i i was again horrified because i'm like a 14 year old me not confident at all can hardly talk in front of a camera can hardly talk to people want me to come to the house of lords to talk about my school food but they managed to convince me and I went to the House of Lords and after sharing my lived experiences, I felt so empowered. I was so supported by the people around me. And for listeners outside the UK, the House of Lords is the upper house of UK Parliament. So I understand that sometime after this experience in the House of Lords, you actually got involved with British celebrity chef and food campaigner Jamie Oliver. Uh, I was invited to Jamie Oliver's HQ up in London. And Jamie basically said that actually now we've had adults speaking for young people and their health for generations and it just isn't working. He says what we need now is a young person revolution. We need, we need young people to stand up, taking responsibility, taking account of their health, the narrative around their health and talking to politicians about their lived experiences. And so we did that and Jamie was completely bang on about it. The adults stand one step away, they support our mission, but young people set the narrative. So um, we set up Bite Back 2030, and uh, I've served as co-chair of Bite Back for around two, three years, and I just recently stepped down uh, a year ago. And can you explain what young people can actually bring to the conversation, to this kind of activism that, for example, older activists or older politicians aren't able to bring to the table? Recently I had a meeting uh, with a few corporates and I got this question saying, what can young people possibly bring that a 25-year-old with an MBA and a Harvard degree can't? I mean, surely we should be making the business case. And I think you've just thought of it all wrong. As young people, we never claim to know the business case. We don't claim to understand you know, the economics behind it or have the solutions ready hand. What, what we can share is our lived experience, which is so vitally important to this. Something that the 25-year-old Harvard graduate can't bring is that lived experience of growing up in a food desert, of interacting with the food industry, of growing up with nearly 
thousands of ads on your phone, on your high street, in your school. These are things that adults and politicians can't resonate with. They don't really understand. And this is why young people's voices are so vitally important. And you put a young person in front of a politician and you speak to them and you say, I go to school hungry. School is the only warm meal that I have. My mom just brings Iceland ready meals because she works two jobs. And actually, I'm not able to afford a really good school meal now because it costs so expensive. And it means that I'm having less food and I'm going hungry. But do you know what that also makes me? It makes me angry. And then the politician goes, oh my God. He said, I never thought of it that way. I need to talk about this. I need to talk to my colleagues. I need to be that impetus for change. I need to drive change. And that's what young people can do. On the flip side of that, though, do you ever face resistance? I mean, even though what we're talking about is young people's well-being, do you ever find that people just aren't taking you seriously because you are a teenager? Absolutely. I think that's a very big problem. It's just problematic if you're talking about young people, but you're not hearing their voices. How can you possibly know what you're talking about young people uh, is the right or wrong thing if you're not actively engaging them? When campaigners, the generation before mine, campaigned against the tobacco industry, they face pushback. When I'm campaigning against the food industry and my friends and my peers are, we're facing pushback. But we need to start understanding as a society that access to good, decent, nutritious food is a public health issue. And we need to start tackling it like a public health issue. How do you think we can ensure that young people do actually have a seat at the table when we're discussing their well-being and not just have a seat at the table, but get listened to when they're there? Something I credit the most for my activism and being able to raise the voice of young people and give us a platform is a group of adults who have supported us and have actively believed in the mission, actively believed in young person's voice. I think we need a lot more of this. The movements I have seen succeed are the ones that are supported and either financially or through intellectually or by influential and powerful players. And I also think that there needs to be a lot more recognition from politicians. Young people are the leaders of today, not tomorrow. This narrative that we uh, are the leaders of tomorrow is outdated. When we've led movements like the climate movement and gun right movements, it's clear to see that young people are really banging the drum around so many different topics. Ultimately, this is really saying that every organisation, every government across the world should have an effective youth strategy, especially if they're trying to future-proof their organisation or their policy. Because the best way to have the best outcomes is to involve young people in decision-making and have to have their say. What's your hope then for how we approach young people's health and well-being better in the future? Well, I'm really concerned at the moment because there's such an intersect between climate change and food and so many other determinants around health. A third of our global climate emissions come from agriculture. Uh, Food is so imperative in terms of children's health and upkeep and well-being. Yet I don't feel like there is a global dialogue around food that acknowledges these risks, acknowledges how important food is to our society, to global upkeep to good health. What we now need is an overall of the food system, bringing together all the different key players and stakeholders in business, in society, in civil society, in politics, in food. We need to come together and redesign the food system to one that benefits all, um, to one that can make a profit for business, but also prioritise health and actually put health before profits. We need government to acknowledge young people's voices uh, in policy. So, 
what do I want in the future? I want a revolution. I want a redesign of the food system. I want all of us, keep all of the key players to come together and really come together and redesign a food system that's fit for purpose and prioritizes health before profits. What do you think the recipe for success is in getting young people meaningfully involved in reshaping these systems? Instead of meaningless youth participation, where you just bring in young people, you listen to them and the next day you go on back to work. Businesses really need a strategy of engaging with young people. So the best businesses I've seen do this have a youth board and they have a youth shadow board shadowing the adult board or they actually have young people sitting within that adult board uh, as a minority you know, shareholder or someone who's contributing to discussion. But that ultimately comes from the leaders of businesses wanting to do that, to empower us, to give us the seat at that table. Once that happens, the rest falls in line. That was Dev Sharma. And our last interviewee, Alain Murabit, has worked tirelessly to get underrepresented groups a seat at the table. We'll hear from her in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about this year's Global Forum for Adolescents. As mentioned at the start of the episode, this podcast is part of a collection on adolescent health and well-being, supported by the Fondation Botnar and the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, PMNCH. And recently, PMNCH convened the Global Forum for Adolescents, part of the 1.8 Young People for Change campaign, with thousands participating and over 1 million engaging and creating real impact. There were more than 120 national events in support of the campaign and forum, and the What Young People Want initiative, advocating for adolescent health and well-being. The Global Forum culminated with the launch of the Agenda for Action for Adolescents, which sets a course for governments and stakeholders from all sectors to ensure their policies and programs are truly meaningful for young people. Visit 1.8.org, that's 1.8.org, to learn more about the Agenda for Action for Adolescents and commitments to adolescent health and well-being. Our final interviewee of today's episode is a perfect example of how young people are not only confronted by unique challenges, but also have the unique potential to use their voices to demand change and combat injustice. When Ala Murabit was just 21, she founded the Voice of Libyan Women, working to give women in Libya a seat at the table during peace processes in the Libyan war. She's now one of the Sustainable Development Goal Advocates for the UN, is UN High Level Commissioner on Health, Employment and Economic Growth, and is Director of Global Policy and Advocacy at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So what inspired Ala to amplify the voices of women in Libya? So I was in my final year of medical school when the revolution broke out. And for me, I think the combination of seeing how medical practitioners were kind of de facto or default on the front line, it was a pretty important factor. And then the second was that I saw women be heavily involved throughout the revolution, you know, feeding people, clothing people, making sure everybody was safe, really kind of protecting communities as the conflict was ongoing. But the second that the conversation turned political and about power and about kind of long-term political power, um, women were were pretty quickly cut out of the conversation. And so 
I founded the Voice of Libyan Women, and the very first thing we did was the One Voice Conference, which brought together at that time um, your leading kind of uh, advocates and activists from around the country, women, um, your leading political figures, which were predominantly men, um, and members of the international community together to say as much as they led in a time of war, women should be leading in a time of you know conflict resolution and in peace. You're not going to have some of the conversations about education and healthcare and 90% of peace processes fail within five years, 90%, if you can imagine the amount of time and energy and effort that goes to making them. And yet when women are involved at the agenda setting phase, when they get to help define what issues are covered, they're 35% more likely to last 15 years. That is incredible when you measure what that means in terms of development, in terms of education, in terms of healthcare access, and in terms of peace, longer term peace. What were the challenges that women were bringing to the table, especially regarding the challenges that young women in Libya were facing? At least with the women that I was working with and with myself, there was a lot more conversation about reconciliation and transitional justice very early on in the conversation. Um, and there was a lot more of a, an intentionality around how do we build systems and services for people? That was something that was really stark. You need both. You need to have the conversations about kind of the immediate power sharing, et cetera. But you also need to have the longer term conversations about how people actually get services that don't encourage renewed violence. And so that was, you know, women really brought up the services aspect. That was very, very strong. Um, education being a big one, a large part of the safety of children that the hospital was another big one, healthcare safety. It was a pretty interesting split. Now, I understand your approach sometimes aims to engage through the lens of faith and tradition. Can you explain why that's a valuable way of tackling these issues? I think one of the key things we noted very early on was the influence that, you know, community actors, faith actors, traditional actors had on their community, particularly in a time of crisis or conflict. I was young when I started the organization. I was a woman and it was a women's rights organization. So it didn't have a lot of inherent community credibility or trust or power. And it was really important for me to see who in the community had that, to kind of map out who had influence, um, especially in the absence of, of government and especially um, with so many various militias. It was really working with power brokers in the community, and, and one of which was the faith community, to say, okay, you actually have more influence than I ever will or ever could on women's rights in this country. And at the very least, I don't need you to be an ally, but I need you not to fundamentally challenge me in public. Because in some communities, if you have one faith leader saying, no, that you know, you're not going to get that vaccine or you're not going to go to that school, it shuts down the conversation for everybody. Faith can be a huge driver for people. I think often when we talk about young people setting out to do the kind of work that you did when you were just 21, we talk about the challenge of doing these things at a very young age. For you, did being an adolescent when you were conducting this work offer any advantages, any insights in carrying this work out? I think it offered a huge advantage in that I had a sense of confidence, a confidence that, you know, while it was studied, was less cautious than than I probably am today. It wasn't it definitely was less jaded than I am today. And it was and it was this sense of I can just walk up to a table of policymakers who are having lunch and say, hi, you know, my name is Zila and I really think you need to be listening to women more. And I think we give it a bad rap, honestly, because I, I think 
that incrementalism as we get older actually means that there's a lot there's a lot less creativity and there's sometimes I, I think a lot, a lot less impact in our work. And so, so I wish I could channel that uh, a little bit more, but I definitely think that was a huge net benefit. Do you have any thoughts on how we can not only foster that in young people, but help maintain that in young people as they grow older? I think a huge part of it is, is actually kind of resourcing and supporting young advocates and young leaders. I think for me, one of the most stark realities was the fact that I was doing this work that I was incredibly passionate about, that I was, you know, excited for, but it was challenging to see that other people saw value in that because of how difficult it was to fundraise for my organization. There's this assumption that when you're young, you're going to do things for free because you care about them, but your organization can't run that way. It can't run if it's not resourced and it definitely can't run if it doesn't have access to the critical conversations. And that's frustrating. Do you think this is beginning to change? Do you think the resources are beginning to be provided and more people are beginning to be invited to the table? Or does this situation still remind you of when you were 21? I'm not sure I think it's it's changing significantly. It reminds me a lot of 2011 when I was younger. And I see a lot of people, a lot of young people kind of invited to events. I see them invited to conversations, but in terms of actually architecting those uh, programs and strategies and, you know, kind of being on the decision-making boards, um, no, I don't see a lot of that. What's your hope then for how young people, particularly young women, can lead on questions of their own well-being, wh- whether that's in conflict or, or in terms of their health and well-being more generally. Well, I think that's, I think you actually hit the nail right on the head, Adam. We're having a lot of conversations about how we ensure the inclusion of women in politics, in, in the economy. And I think we're missing the main point, which is if you don't have autonomy over your own body, if you feel like you can't make decisions about your own body, what does that say to you about your leadership capacity and, and your decision-making capacity? When a woman has access to healthcare, she's much more likely to marry later. You're more likely to space out your children. You're more likely to have less children, which are also really important factors in, in your own individual ability to lead and to, to engage. And then you're more likely to vaccinate your kids. You're more likely to actually work. You're more likely to reinvest those resources back into the community. There's a significant difference based on whether or not you get basic health care and basic education services as a girl to what you're able to achieve as an adolescent and as a woman. Sometimes it, it feels like the conversation on bodily autonomy is seen as something that impacts adolescents and older women. It impacts everybody. I, I think we, we need to shift that conversation to say, what are the very clear non-negotiables? And, and, and girls' education and health would be the top of my list. Your answer there really outlines just how interlinked bodily autonomy and health are to to education, to social well-being. Do our responses to young people and young women reflect this? Are our responses as joined up as these different aspects of well-being are joined up? Oh, I definitely don't think there are responses as joined up as the different aspects of a person's well-being. I definitely don't think that on almost anything. I think the development community, I think the international community, uh, and I think even the way we build national policies is is not necessarily the way people think about and look at their own 
lives and realities. We have the Department of Health and the Department of Education, and we kind of divorce the two. And very rarely do you actually um, get to look at get to look at you know a woman or girl or or boy you know or anyone um, in a in a holistic way and say okay well, these are the different levers that impact their life and how do we actually do this in a more effective way. I think we're increasingly looking at schools at elementary schools as opportunities to educate people about health. I think we're increasingly talking about mental health, which I think is very important um, in universities and in high schools. But do I think that there's enough kind of enough of a of a parallel between the two communities and and that we're really appreciating just how deeply connected education and healthcare are and health access are for women and girls? No. No, I, I definitely don't think so. That was Alamu Rabbit. But what can happen when we do join up the dots for young people's well-being? Well, I'd like to return to our first interviewee of today's episode, Natasha Salifianji-Kalmer, who shared some of her success stories with us. We've had so many different experiences. About six months ago, I went to one of our remote sites and we have a PrEP user support group. So PrEP is... Uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention. We have support groups and I was amazed to see how young the people in those support groups were. And I started asking them, I asked this particular girl, why are you taking PrEP? You're only 14. This doesn't add up. And she says, my parents can't afford to pay school fees. And so I have this guy that helps me out and I think he's HIV positive and I'm doing this to protect myself. And it is girls like Mapalo that make me realize that sexual reproductive health is not just about pleasure. It's not just about rights. It's also about how it's used as a means, for example, for socioeconomic gain and used as a means for education and other things that are also important. Can you explain a little bit more just how much sexual and reproductive health impacts other aspects of adolescent well-being, whether that's for example, educational well-being or our social well-being? When you look at somebody that has an unwanted pregnancy, and by the way, in Zambia, about 30% of maternal deaths are due to septic or, or, or unsafe abortions. And so when you look at that, it's the fact that if a girl has sexual intercourse and she gets pregnant and she doesn't want to keep the child, she's at risk of dying and losing her life completely. Also, when you look at the HIV infections in Zambia, in the last year, there was about 40,000 new infections amongst boys between 10 and 19. But the number for girls was about 105,000, which is like more than double. So sexual and reproductive health has long-term implications because sometimes people might contract, contract diseases that are incurable or manageable, but definitely not curable as well as um, sometimes things like teenage pregnancies are a reason why girls get married because of the social cultural aspects of pregnancy. So this is a 14-year-old who didn't have access to a condom who now has to get married to the 16-year-old guy who impregnated her um, simply because the culture says she has to marry him. So based on, on examples like these, I would say that sexual and reproductive health is, is very, very important and it affects all other sectors. And that's why when we're looking at solutions, we have to think a multi, from a multi-sectoral standpoint. As you mentioned, for many of us, 
some of our most important early life memories come from adolescence. And yet it seems that often we kind of overlook these adolescent years when it comes to things like health and well-being. Why do you think these years often don't get the attention they deserve? Adolescent health is bunched together with things like infectious diseases and and other immediate health issues. And so you find that often in certain setups, they are prioritizing between people dying from an infectious disease versus dealing with an adolescent health issue. So people want to deal with a more immediate thing first because they can see the implication. Whereas for adolescents, the implication is not immediate. But that's, that's not how things should be done. That's not how things should be done. What are your hopes then for the future of how we approach the health and well-being of young people in Zambia? In order for us to see gains in adolescent health and well-being, we might need to stop generalizing adolescents as one group of people, especially in the African context, because different tribes and ethnic groups have got different values. And so we've seen that these one-size-fits-all or things that are cutting across many different social cultural groups have been tried, but some of them are not working simply because, well, it's not relatable to the ethnic group in which they are being applied because these things have a very, very big impact on their acceptability and their ability to be effective. Natasha Salifianji Kalma there. And that's it for today's episode. But there's still lots to come as we'll be picking up on the topic of education and its links to all other aspects of adolescent well-being in our next episode. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that. This episode was produced for the BMJ by myself, with support from the Fondation Botnar, as well as PMNCH, the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. Until next time, thanks for listening, I'm Adam Levy.